After months of preaching, teaching, and healing, Jesus escaped to the mountains to be alone with his disciples. Matthew 5, 1-2 states that when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them. Away from the crowds, Jesus the rabbi sat, gathered his disciples, and began to teach them. Frequently, Jesus' rabbinical ministry has been overlooked by the Western church. In the Jewish culture, rabbis were teachers of God's law. Some rabbis were connected to a specific synagogue, while others would travel from town to town gathering disciples. Jesus would fit into the latter category of the traveling rabbi. Several pieces of scriptural evidence indicate that Jesus was a rabbi. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, referred to Jesus as a rabbi. John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. A Pharisee would not refer to Jesus as a rabbi if he were not one. Also, Jesus traveled from synagogue to synagogue teaching the scriptures. Luke chapter 4, verse 16, 31 and 32. And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. Jesus would not have been afforded a teaching role in the synagogue had he not been a rabbi. The most important support for Jesus' rabbinical ministry is that he had disciples or Talmudim, i.e. those who study. Disciples were bound to the rabbi for life. After several years of sitting under a rabbi and learning the law, disciples would be then commissioned to teach and be addressed as rabbis themselves. The three-year ministry of Jesus with the disciples fits this pattern. Before Jesus returned to heaven, the twelve were trained in God's law and commissioned as rabbis to teach and make other disciples. Matthew 28, 19-20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That commission to make more disciples who will become rabbis or teachers is still ongoing today. Now Matthew chapter 5 through 7 records what is commonly known as the Sermon on the Mount. As a rabbi, Jesus presented his disciples information on how to properly interpret and apply God's law. As such, this sermon is a series of lessons based upon God's law for living as kingdom citizens. Accordingly, John Stott states that the Sermon on the Mount is the most complete delineation anywhere in the New Testament of the Christian counterculture. Here is a Christian value system, ethical standard, religious devotion, attitude to money, ambition, lifestyle, and network of relationships, all which are totally at variance with those of the non-Christian world. Jesus begins his sermon by outlining the eight characteristics of a kingdom citizen. Now he does this in the form of an inclusio, 
An inclusio is a literary device that repeats words or themes at the beginning and end of a section. Here in Matthew 5, 3-12, Jesus begins and ends his inclusio with the phrase, Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The statements between the inclusio are dependent upon the other, like links in a chain. Hence, Jesus begins with the poor in spirit and follows it with those who mourn. In the context of an inclusion, one cannot mourn unto, until they are poor in spirit. Thus, the chain would follow that those who are poor in spirit will mourn. Those who mourn will be gentle, i.e. humble. Those who are gentle will hunger and thirst for righteousness, i.e. God's law. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be merciful. Those who are merciful will be pure in heart. Those who are pure in heart will be peacemakers. And finally, those who are peacemakers will be persecuted for the sake of righteousness. As well, note that each of these characteristics are related to the commendation, blessed, makarios. The Hebrew equivalent term, eshir, identifies the blessed as those who possess God's favor as a result of doing His will. To be blessed is to have God's favor. And as believers display these eight characteristics, they will possess God's favor. Particularly, the rewards attached to each of these characteristics is the emanation of God's divine favor. Now, these eight characteristics of the kingdom citizen can be divided into two categories, human and divine. The first four characteristics deal with the kingdom citizen's relationship with God. First, you must be poor in spirit. Before a thrice holy God, you must acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy. Second, you must mourn. That is, you must sorrow over your sin and approach God in repentance. Next, you must be gentle. Because of your spiritual poverty and God's more extraordinary grace and mercy in forgiving your sins, you must humble yourself and submit to Jesus' authority as Lord. And finally, you must hunger and thirst for righteousness. In submitting to the Lord Jesus' authority, you must seek to conform your life to his law and practice his righteousness in the world around you. Now examine yourself. Are you emanating these four characteristics in your relationship with God as a kingdom citizen? Having examined these four characteristics of a kingdom citizen... We now need to consider those qualities dealing with your relationship with others. See, the second four characteristics, merciful, pure in heart, peacemaker, and persecuted, deal with the kingdom citizen's relationship with their fellow man. As you as a kingdom citizen grow in relationship with your God, your relationship with your fellow man will be affected. And so we're going to look at these four characteristics, these last four, and we're going to continue the numbering. So the first characteristic will be characteristic number five. Characteristic number five of a kingdom citizen. They are merciful. Look at verse seven. Matthew chapter five, verse seven. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. The fifth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are merciful. Now the term merciful... Ilimon denotes a person who shows compassion and forgiveness to others, especially, listen carefully, to those who have offended them. The term Ilimon 
is used only one other time in the New Testament, in Hebrews 2.17. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful, there's our word, ilimum, and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. You see, by enduring the humiliation of death on the cross, Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest. As a merciful high priest, Jesus shows compassion and offers forgiveness to those who have offended him. Who are those that have offended Jesus? All of us, all humanity. Because as Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Despite our offense, Jesus nonetheless sacrificed himself to achieve our forgiveness. Ephesians 1.7 In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. His sacrifice was the greatest act of mercy the world has ever known. And when individuals, when you and I acknowledge our spiritual poverty and repent of our sins, we receive mercy from the Godhead. For the repentant sinner, Jesus is high priest dispenses mercy that quenches God's wrath against us as sinners and saves us from a final destiny in the lake of fire. And for the repentant saint like us, Jesus as high priest dispenses mercy that restores fellowship between the sinning saint and God the Father. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will provide us with a model for praying. He tells us that there must be a penitent penitent attitude or aspect to our prayer. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. Matthew 6, 12. In Luke eleven four, 4, the term debts is replaced by sins, implying that these debts are spiritual and result from sins committed. You see, because of sin, believer, you and I owe a debt to God, and therefore we must repent when we sin. And because of Christ's sacrifice, mercy is dispensed and forgiveness granted. Now friends, having received mercy from God, we are to show mercy, show compassion, and forgiveness to others. Colossians 3.13 Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As well, notice that in the model of prayer, when believers ask God to forgive their sins, the appeal is on the basis that you, as a believer, have forgiven those who have sinned against you. You see, mercy cannot be granted to you until mercy is given by you. As well, it must be emphasized that mercy and by default forgiveness cannot be given unless one repents of sin. Believer, examine yourself whether or not you are merciful, especially to those who have wronged you. That means being ready to forgive them and restore them when they repent. Now, to those who are merciful, Jesus promises that they shall receive mercy. Mercy, ilio, means to receive compassion. That is, you will be recompensed mercy or compassion to the degree that you have bestowed mercy or compassion upon others. 
to the point you will not receive mercy if you are unmerciful to those who have sinned against you. Jesus drives home this point later in this sermon. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Matthew 5, 14 to 15. So characteristic number five, they are merciful. Now characteristic number six, kingdom citizens are pure in heart. Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The sixth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are pure in heart. That phrase, in heart, is similar to the phrase, in spirit, in verse 3. Just as, in spirit, denoted the type of poverty to which Jesus referred, in heart denotes the type of purity to which he refers. From a Jewish perspective, the heart, cardia, figuratively refers to one's desires, affections, or passions. The term pure, katharos, means to be clean or free of sin and guilt. Hence, Jesus is admonishing believers to be inwardly clean and pure. In other words, our desires, our affections, our passions are to be sinless or morally upright. No doubt Jesus alludes to Psalm 24, verse 3 to 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who has clean hands and a pure heart? Who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully? He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now the word clean in Psalm 24 means innocent or free from sin. And pure refers to that which has no faults. As well, hands and heart are used to denote a person's outward actions and inward motives. The hands are the tools by which the desires of the heart are accomplished. Hence, outwardly, one's actions should be sinless, and one's inward motives should be faultless. In the context of Psalm 24, David recognizes that only those who are outwardly sinless and inwardly faultless can come worship the Lord. Now, does that describe you? Anticipating questions, David illustrates what he means by clean hands and a pure heart. It means that someone has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and not sworn deceitfully. To lift up the soul to falsehood is to set your heart on that which is false. Swear deceitfully is to take an oath under false pretenses, a topic Jesus will address in Matthew 5, 33-37. In other words, to have clean hands and a pure heart then means that you are motivated by truth and have integrity in your dealings with others. Does that describe you? The same question posed by David in Psalm 24 verse 3 is asked also in Psalm 15 1. O Lord, who may abide in your tent? Who may dwell on your holy hill? David replies in chapter 15, verse 2, He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. In Psalm 15, 3-5, the psalmist provides 12 descriptions for what he later refers to as pure in heart. It reads, He does not slander with his tongue, nor does evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes 
A reprobate is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord. He swears to his own heart and does not change. He does not put out his money at interest, nor does he take a bribe against the innocent. These 12 descriptions of the pure in heart all depict how believers relate to others. First, the pure in heart walks with integrity. Their behavior is blameless. Is your behavior blameless? That is, you do not live in a habitually sinful manner. Second, the pure in heart works righteousness. That is, they conform to God's law. Do you? Third, the pure in heart speaks truth in his heart. In other words, they are sincere in all they say. Are you? Fourth, the pure in heart does not slander with his tongue. In other words, he doesn't gossip or make false charges against another person. How about you? Fifth, the pure in heart does no evil to his neighbor. That is, you do not act in an immoral fashion towards others. Again, how about you? Does that describe you? Sixth, the pure in heart does not take up a reproach against a friend. In other words, you're not seeking to discredit or destroy another's reputation. Have you ever been guilty of that? Seventh, the pure in heart reckons that a reprobate is despised. In other words, you have disdain for those who practice immorality. Do you disdain immorality or do you practice immorality? Determines whether or not you're pure in heart. Eighth, the pure in heart honor those who fear the Lord. In other words, you, have, you show respect for other believers. Is that true of you? Ninth, the pure in heart swears to his own heart. In other words, you keep your word or your oath even when difficult. Do you keep your, do you keep your word? And ten, tenth, the pure in heart does not change. In other words, they're not capricious, fickle, or vacillating. How about you? Does, are, are you somebody that's capricious or fickle? Do you vacillate? If so, you're not pure in heart. Eleventh, the pure in heart does not put out his money in interest. In other words, believers are not to charge interest on a loan to another believer. Twelfth, the pure in heart does not take a bribe against the innocent. We ought not to be able to be bought off. We should be fighting for and defending the innocent. Does that describe you? Are you someone who defends the innocent or are you someone who takes advantage of them? See, my friends, if we are to be pure in heart, we need to be characterized by these 12 actions. A warning, however, must be heeded. Believer, you must beware of performing outwardly pure and right actions if inwardly your motives are less than pure. See, it was the lack of a clean or pure heart for which Jesus condemned the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 23, verse 25 and 26. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may become clean also. You see, my friends, outward displays of purity are nothing more than a form of hypocrisy if your heart or your inward motivation is not pure and right before God. Now remember, Psalm 24, 5 stated that those with the pure hearts shall receive a blessing from the Lord. 
To those who are pure in heart, Jesus promises that they shall see God. The verb see, horao, means to perceive or to experience. Currently, we can only perceive God by faith through the revelation of His Word. As Yahweh told Moses, no man can see me and live. Exodus 33 verse 20. 1 Timothy 6.16, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in an unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. No man has seen him in the past, no man can see him presently. However, the day will come when the pure in heart will perceive him with their eyes. Psalm 11 verse 7, the upright will behold his face. Job 19, 26 and 27, yet from my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall behold, and whom my eyes will see, and not another. 1 John 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. So in our dealings with others, we need to be merciful and we need to be pure in heart. Characteristic number seven of a kingdom citizen is they are peacemakers. Verse nine, Matthew chapter five and verse nine, they are peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. The seventh characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are peacemakers. Now the term peacemaker, ere no royas, comes from two Greek terms. Erene and poieo. Erene translates the Hebrew term for peace, shalom. While it carries a wide range of applications, such as the absence of strife or blessing, it more specifically connotes the idea of reconciliation. The verb poieo means to make or to do. Hence, a peacemaker is one who makes reconciliation. More specifically, it is the one who acts as a mediator in reconciling two individuals or parties. Now, because of sin, humanity is at enmity with God. Romans 8 and verse 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. Christ, however, serves as the mediator or peacemaker to reconcile sinners and Yahweh. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.20 Through Christ to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, reconciliation or peace with God is possible through Jesus' shed blood. His blood is the cleansing agent removing sin and the conciliating agent reconciling sinners with God. Those who repent and believe the gospel now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. Because we have peace with God, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews 4.16. Again, consider one of the root terms in peacemaker, poieo. The verb poieo emphasizes that we must actively be making peace. Every believer as a kingdom citizen must be a peacemaker in their church and community. That is, we must not be responsible for creating conflict, but work to resolve conflicts and reconcile individuals. No doubt, 
The idea of being a peacemaker is an allusion to Psalm 34, verse 14. Seek peace and pursue it. In Romans 12, 17 and 18, Paul admonished us, never pay back evil to anyone, respect what is right in the sight of all men, and if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. I want you to consider two phrases there in Romans 12, 18. If possible, and so far as it depends on you. The phrase, so far as it depends on you, places the responsibility of pursuing peace squarely on your shoulders. However, the phrase, if possible, denotes that peace is not always attainable. It's not always attainable. There are some people who are strife stirrers and make peace impossible. To such people, Paul says in Romans 16, 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and turn away from them. Now, a word of caution must be considered. Being a peacemaker does not imply being a men-pleaser or merely appeasing people. For example, if two neighbors are fighting and each complains to a third neighbor about the other, if the third neighbor simply agrees with them both, they're not being a peacemaker but an appeaser. The duty of peacemaking involves actively working to help those two neighbors resolve their conflict. As well, peace is not peace at any cost. Martin Luther well said, peace if possible, truth at all costs. Truth must not be sacrificed for peace, and doctrine must not be sacrificed for unity. Peace must be established according to God's terms. For example, there can be no peace where wrongdoing has been done until repentance has been initiated. As also, pursuing peace sometimes involves conflict. Maintaining peace amongst believers means that certain behaviors cannot be tolerated. When Peter engaged in hypocritical behavior, Paul confronted and rebuked him in Galatians 2, 11-13. When Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Sometimes engaging in wrong behaviors of others means engaging in conflict with those who refuse to repent. As well, pursuing peace does not mean that we will never have disagreements. Paul and Barnabas had strong disagreements over Mark's fitness for the ministry. Acts 15, 36-39. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brethren in every city in which we proclaim the word of the Lord, and see how they are. Barnabas wanted to take John, called Mark, along with them also. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along who had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there occurred such a sharp disagreement that they separated from one another. Though Paul viewed Mark as unfit for service, he later saw Mark, Mark's fitness and requested that he come and serve with him. 2 Timothy 4.11 Pick up Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for service. Being a peacemaker in such situations often involves handling disagreements with grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Now, being a peacemaker involves three steps. 
First, you must pray for wisdom. James 1.5 If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Knee-jerk reactions are not key to successful peacemaking. If we're going to reconcile people to God or to one another, we must employ God's wisdom in those situations. Second, the peacemaker, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you must take the initiative. On the one hand, if you realize that someone has an issue with you, you are to pursue reconciliation before worshiping God. Matthew 5, 23-24 Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, then come and present your offering. On the other hand, if, a, if you have an issue with another believer, you're to confront them in private. Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. You see, peacemakers are doers and take the initiative. Don't sit back and wait for somebody else to do it for you. You take the initiative. You know, I know some of you may be listening and you're balking at this. You're making the excuse, well, that person hurt me and they need to come to me. That's not always God's way. Humanity wronged God, but God took the initiative to send His Son to reconcile humanity to Himself. Humanity did not pursue God first. He pursued them. And so too, we must follow God's example and pursue those who have hurt us and seek to reconcile with them. Now remember that reconciliation cannot occur until repentance of the wrong has been made. Third, peacemakers must be gentle. You must be gentle. Proverbs 15.1, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. 2 Timothy 2.25, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Remember the old adage, attack the problem, not the person. Calling the person names or speaking rudely or harshly to them will not result in reconciliation or peace. Remember, believers, we are to use our words to build up others, not tear them down. Ephesians 4.29 Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. So to those who are the peacemakers, Jesus promises that they shall be called sons of God. The verb called, kaleo, means to appoint to a rank or office. In particular, peacemakers will be appointed to the rank of Son of God. Now do not confuse the phrase Son of God with child of God. Every one of us believers at the moment of salvation is a child of God. That is, we're part of the family of God. We carry the family name, i.e. Christian. However, to be a Son of God is something altogether different. The phrase Son of God denotes the idea of character. In other words, a son of God is someone who not only carries the family name, but carries on the family character, which in this case is peace. Remember, Christ is the Prince of Peace, Isaiah 9, 6. Thus, when we make peace, or are peacemakers, we are demonstrating the Son of God's character. Hence, we are blessed to carry the rank of Son of God. The eighth characteristic of a kingdom citizen is that they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Characteristic 8, they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. Let's look at verse 10 to 12. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Again, we come to our final characteristic of a kingdom citizen, and that is they are persecuted for the sake of righteousness. While verse 10 through 12 contains two statements of blessing, there really is only one blessing. Namely, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The second, blessed are you statement, is a parallel statement to the first to clarify or enhance the idea stated in the initial blessed are statement. As well with the second blessed, the pronoun changes from the third person, i.e. blessed are those, to the second person, i.e. blessed are you. The change in pronoun is used to show the disciples, to show us that all of these statements apply personally to us, to them, the original disciples, and to us as well. Now the placement of this characteristic gets significant. Previously we were noted for being peacemakers. But as I said, not everyone wants peace. And as a result, some peacemakers will be persecuted. Furthermore, those whom they have sought to make peace with or reconcile will insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. The verb insult, onidizo, refers to defaming, disparaging, or reviling someone with abusive words. Persecute, dioko, is causing someone emotional, mental, or physical distress. Evil, paneros, denotes abusive or injurious words spoken to inflict harm to one's reputation. And note that these evil words are spoken falsely. There's no basis for truth in their words. Notice that the insults, persecutions, and injurious words are for the sake of righteousness and because of me. The phrase for the sake of in verse 10 and the term because of in verse 11 both translate the Greek term henika meaning on account of someone or something. Righteousness is conforming to God's moral standard. That is his law. The personal pronoun me refers back to the one speaking, namely King Jesus. Because we as kingdom citizens obey the laws of the king and imitate the king, those who are not of the kingdom will defame us with abusive speech, causing some emotional, mental, and physical anguish, and even making false claims against us to damage our reputation. Friends, the fact that we will suffer varying degrees of persecution should come as no surprise. Jesus said in Luke 6.26, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. His point was that people universally speak well of false prophets. Listen, if everyone is speaking well of you, then something must be wrong. Because when a kingdom citizen lives to please their king, the world will be displeased. You as a believer, you as a kingdom citizen, should expect some degree of insult, persecution, or false accusation. As Peter stated in 1 Peter 4.12, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. See, my friend, being a Christian does not exempt you from insults, persecutions, or false accusations. Indeed, trials are a rite of passage before entering the kingdom of God. Acts 14.22 Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. I'd like you to consider the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Suffering, then, he says, 
is the badge of true discipleship. The disciple is not above his master. Following Christ means passio passiva, suffering because we have to suffer. Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising, he says, that Christians should be called upon to suffer. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. You see, my friend, the natural response when we're insulted, persecuted, or, or falsely accused is to complain and retaliate. Nonetheless, Jesus says, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice, Cairo, is to be in a state of joy. Be glad, Agelio, means to show joy to the fullest extent. Both verbs are imperative, meaning that it is not necessarily a feeling, but an attitude and action that we choose. We choose to rejoice or be joyful despite our circumstances. As Paul stated in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Also in 2 Corinthians 7.14 he said, I am overflowing with joy in all our affliction. Indeed, Paul rejoiced in affliction because he possessed the promises of the king. The command to rejoice and be glad does not mean that you need to deny the mental, emotional, or physical pain associated with the suffering or the persecution. Hours before his death, Jesus struggled with loud crying and tears, Hebrews 5, 7. Nonetheless, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. The command to rejoice and be glad does not mean that you deny your pain and put on a happy face. Romans 12.15 commands us to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. What Jesus does affirm, however, is that we can be joyful to the fullest extent for two reasons. First, our reward in heaven is great. This reward will be given to us when we stand in God's presence. The, re the reward is so great that the insults, persecutions, and false accusations will pale in comparison. This reward parallels the promised blessing. To those who are persecuted, Jesus promises that theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is, they are assured of their citizenship in the kingdom of God. Second, we can be joyful to the fullest extent because, we are, because they persecuted the prophets in the same way. Paul testified in Hebrews 11, 35-38 that the prophets were tortured, mocked, scourged, imprisoned, sawn in two, put to death with the sword, afflicted and ill-treated. Like the Old Testament prophets, we are part of the same kingdom and serve the same king. That the prophets suffered for the same cause assures us that we are not alone. Despite their suffering, they continue to serve the king and so should we as kingdom citizens. Whereas the first four characteristics of kingdom citizens dealt with the believer's responsibility towards God, these last four characteristics demonstrate how we relate to one another. Our relationship with God dictates how we relate to others. First, we must be merciful. In other words, we must show compassion towards others, especially those who have hurt us. Remember, those who have received mercy must show mercy. Second, we must be pure in heart. We must be motivated by truth and have integrity and transparency in our dealings with others. Third, we must be peacemakers. 
We must work to resolve conflicts and reconcile individuals. And fourth, we must be ready to suffer persecution. Obedience and identification with King Jesus will result in opposition, slander, and persecution. Listen, friends, his values and standards are in conflict with the standards and values of this world. Nonetheless, we must not waver, but continue to be merciful, pure in heart, and peacemakers. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, Lord, I ask and pray that you might help us to develop these characteristics. That first, Lord, we would develop those characteristics that ought to be evident because of our relationship with you. But then, Lord, may we not stop there, but when we go on and look at our relationship with others. May our relationship with you dictate our relationship with others. Help us to be merciful as you are merciful. Help us to be pure in heart as you are pure in heart. Lord, help us to, have, to, to, to not just be ready to, to receive mercy, but give mercy. And as well, Lord, help us to be truthful and sincere and, and, and trustworthy in what we say and do in our dealings with others. Father, help us to be peacemakers. Let us not be the source of contention, but let us be the ones who try and, and to resolve and reconcile things. We know, Father, it's not peace at any cost. We know that, Father, in, in maintaining peace, there is a price. And sometimes it involves confrontation. But, Lord, I pray that in those times we would ask for your wisdom. That, Lord, we would be the ones taking action. And that, Lord, as well, we would be gentle. And, Father, when those times of persecution come, help us to not become bitter but rather to continue to be merciful, to continue to be pure in heart, and to continue to be peacemakers. We pray in your son's precious name. Amen.